This episode is dedicated to Dread Pirate at Creepy XL, who's forgotten things about being cool that I'll never know. Writing about crime contains themes and subjects that some may find upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. Telling the Christine Jack story would be impossible without John D. Montgomery. He's a former chief prosecutor for the city of Winnipeg who wrote the book Trials and Errors, The People vs. Brian Gordon Jack. What made the Christine Jack case of particular interest was threefold. First, these were two solid citizens which were well-respected in Winnipeg. Secondly, they were considered notable Winnipeggers. And thirdly, there was no body. From December to April 1988, several searches were conducted. On foot, with dogs through snowdrifts, and even helicopters were used over St. Anne, circling further and further around and expanding out. Local snowmobile groups helped as much as they could. By the end of December, Inspector Ron Dawson told the media that they were awaiting forensic test results for the fabric, hair samples, and stains recovered from the blazer. By April 22nd, the snow was now melting away, and it left behind waterlogged fields and overrunning ditches. Yet this didn't slow the search. Now the drifts were gone, and over a hundred officers inspected along the highway from St. Anne to Haddishville, through swamps, dangerous wildlife, and thick, dense bushes. Although the search was one of the most expansive and thorough to date in Manitoba, nothing turned up. And although trial was to begin that May, there's a four-month delay in the proceedings so that the DNA results can be completed and submitted to the courts before trial. So, on June 10, 1989, police end the search for Christine's body in St. Anne and Steinbeck areas. As the case moves on, by the 19th of September in 1989, the courts rule that Brian Jack can see his children. While the school division that employed Christine had now to consider how they would replace her, it was difficult to find a suitable replacement who had her qualifications and her warmth. It was a grueling situation for the people that spent a lot of time around Christine. She was deeply cared for by the staff. By October 11, 1989, something triggered the police to return to St. Anne for a one-day search. But after the long delay for DNA results, the Crown finally advises the court that the tests are discontinued because they cannot reasonably expect results by the September deadline. In early September, at a preliminary hearing, the subject of two waitresses comes to light. And it's the first time that the defense hears about their call to the Winnipeg Police Service reporting a sighting of Christine Jack. Finally, by September 10th of 1990, the trial begins, and Chief Justice Benjamin Hawk would hear the case. He's hearing one of only three murder trials to that date, where no body was in evidence of the murder, and he presided on all three of them. Richard Wilson would represent Brian Jack at his trial. He was a well-respected defense attorney, and he was nicknamed Tiger Wilson. Brian Kaplan was co-counsel for John Montgomery, the lead Crown attorney. There would be 46 witnesses in total, 16 police officers, and 32 civilians. Witnesses for the prosecution included a friend of 18 years, Cheryl McMillan. She was blonde and had a positive personality. Cheryl ran the Kinder Spirit with Cheryl, the children's clothing line, and she was the first to testify about Christine Jack's commitment to her children. She was bound tightly with Kirsten and Adam. Her parenting style was engaging and loving. She would never, ever leave her children behind, she told the court. That idea was impossible. She testified that Christine was a hard worker. She was very committed to both her speech therapy and the children's clothing business. She ran and maintained the home and took care of the children almost all on her own. She said that Brian was no longer working and was irresponsible and easygoing 
making him sound rather lazy. She also testified that Brian was keeping Christine up late by persisting in talking out problems in the marriage, and it began affecting her daily life. Cheryl said that Christine had appeared to be losing weight, and it was apparent that she was tired and unenthusiastic for a long while. She could tell that something was amiss. Cheryl testified that Christine was the main income earner after Brian lost his business, and he was having trouble finding work. She testified that they were having some financial problems and difficulties keeping in the black. She said that on November 18th, it was Cheryl's idea that they take a small road trip to Grand Forks, across the Manitoba border into North Dakota. It was a destination for many Manitobans who want to shop and dine in the U.S. for a few days, and it isn't a very long drive. The next to testify was Donna Mae Henry. She was 32 years old and was a neighbor to the couple and had known Christine since they were both 15 years old. They had remained close friends into their university years, and then as they each married and raised their families, she saw how Christine was with her children, and she testified that it was impossible that she would leave. Regardless of what the marriage was like, she would not leave her children behind. She was so close with Christine that she named one of her twin babies, Alexandra Christine, in memory of her dear friend. And Donna's daughter was friends with Kirsten, and the families treated both daughters as if they were their own. She had known Christine since she lived on Alberg Drive before they bought the latest home. They had immediately hit it off and she said they were closer than sisters. She testified that she would help out Christine and Cheryl with the children's clothing business. And that on December 10th, 1988, she was with Christine when she confided that she was afraid of Brian. She said the night before, she had brought up the subject of separating, and he pinned her down for what she said was 15 minutes. Donna testified that Christine asked her to take care of her children if anything should ever happen to her. Donna May's husband, Peter Henry, testified as well, and he told of Brian being bitter over his marriage crumbling and being convinced that if he could find a good job, things were more likely to be sorted out. He testified about Brian Jack being at a dinner party with Christine, and she was clearly avoiding Brian, and then later he found her crying in the kitchen. On October 4th, Lydia Janovic also testified. She was struggling testifying at first, but loosened up enough to give some powerful testimony to the jury. She outlined that she had met Christine's parents in 1964 and was close with all of them. The children called her Tante, or Aunt, or they'd call her Baka, grandmother in German. Only in early December did she become aware that there were such serious problems in Christine's marriage, and she told the jury of how the children were so close with their mother that they were always together, and Christine was very involved as a parent always hugging them and playing. She described them as hanging out around each other like little birds. She elaborated on Cheryl's testimony that Brian was making things very difficult because while Christine was working, keeping the house, and doing her side job, he wouldn't be bothered to help with the routines around the home. He would go hunting or fishing and various things during the day when he should have been looking for work at least, or helping around the house. Lydia tried to speak with Christine about the topic on the phone, but Brian was seemingly always lingering around the calls. Finally, on a day in mid-morning, they were able to speak, and Christine repeated the incident where Brian climbed onto her and pinned her down in an effort to make her listen to his reasoning. His reasoning about why the marriage could not resolve. Christine told her that he threw her but had not hit her, so she didn't feel that she should involve the police. They spoke again a few days later, and Christine was more adamant that the separation would have to occur. She told her that she was working on a legal separation. Lydia called again the Saturday that Christine went missing first thing in the morning to confirm her visit later that day, 
but Brian told her they had plans to go to a Christmas party instead. Finally, Christine took the phone and told her that they were looking ahead to a visit at Lydia's the next day at her home. And it was the next morning at 5.10 a.m. that she was awoken by Brian's phone call telling her that Christine was missing. Burton and Faye Harden, husband and wife, both testified as well. Faye said that they too had been contacted by Brian several times in December. Burton at the radio station where he worked and his wife at home. Faye testified that she was uncomfortable with the conversations because she was never close with Brian. She'd only played squash with Christine in the past and the couples had lost touch. She said he called her in December around the 14th and was describing marital problems he was having and how he wanted to work things out. Burton testified that it was disturbing to have Brian call him unexpectedly while he was at his job. Brian was seeking work, and then he would continue on to hear the minor acquaintance describe his marital problems and even disclosing their sexual issues. He said these calls happened a few times and they made him uneasy. Faye told the court that after she spoke to Brian on the 14th of December, she didn't hear from Christine or Brian again. She did, however, notice when she saw Christine's eye-catching yellow blazer parked behind the Salisbury House coffee shop on Furmore Avenue around the 20th of December. The next thing she heard was Christine was missing when her brother-in-law called and gave her the news. She testified that she called Brian to tell him, but she couldn't reach him, so she called the police to inform them that she had seen the blazer. One of the most compelling witnesses to come forward in the trial was Earl Weber. He testified on October the 3rd, and at the time he was employed with the United States Armed Forces. He was three years younger than Brian, and he was a similar build and stature. He was called in almost as a preemptive strike. The Crown knew that he had no real effect on the case either way, but if the defense decided that he was a possible alternate suspect, it would be important for the jury to see that. He was an American citizen though. He had no obligation to appear in the Manitoba court, but he agreed with no hesitation. He was on the witness stand to detail a meeting that took place between Christine and himself while she was in Grand Forks with Cheryl McMillan. And here comes the boom. He first met and was engaged to Christine in the early 1970s while they attended the same university in North Dakota. They had at one point decided not to marry, but then continued on with the relationship and decided once again to be engaged. He agreed in cross-examination that he regretted his immaturity in the last stage of their engagement. They had split up when Christine completed her education and she decided against marriage. She returned to Winnipeg. He never heard from her again until the call one week before she was planning her trip and she wanted to see if he was free to meet up with her. They met at a restaurant and then they separated from Cheryl to go and see their old campus from the days at the university. They talked about their lives now and reminisced about the old days while they walked the campus at times holding hands. They had often walked around the campus talking when they were dating back in the day. And he testified that the two of them acknowledged that they still had some of the old spark between them. And Cheryl would later confirm that Christine confided this to her as well. They talked about the past few years and Christine did tell him that she expressed sadness at the fact that things back home were not working out too well. Christine was dropped off back to meet with Cheryl, but Earl told the court that he did see her again a couple of days later. He described their meeting at a local department store parking lot. They sat in his truck where they talked for over an hour. They discussed their relationships. He had been married and a father of two children, and he testified that they did kiss each other and sat in his truck embraced as they talked. Before she left, Earl gave her his phone number, and he encouraged her to call him if she ever wanted to talk. They wrote to each other a few times after Christine returned to Winnipeg, 
and he admitted to having thoughts of reuniting with her. They also spoke on the telephone, but only when the two of them were at work, not at home. He testified that Brian Jack also contacted him by a telephone and was asking him for help saving his marriage. Earl confessed to lying to Brian about the current situation. He felt from previous discussions with Christine that she would feel better if Brian just didn't know about the letters and conversations. Brian did contact him once more, but he only said, am I speaking to Earl Weber? And then disconnected the call. Earl testified that he never did hear from Christine again after her disappearance. The next witness was Catherine Walls. She testified early in the trial. She was a school psychiatrist working at the Fort Rouge School on December 15th. She testified that at 11 a.m. she received a call from Brian at work. It caused concern for her because she really didn't know Brian and had never spoken to him on the phone. He even had to have the secretary track her down to even contact her. She tells the court that she was familiar with Christine and Brian as they had lived near her in their previous home, but that none of them kept in touch after they moved onto the new house a few years ago. And the call that she got from Brian was about half an hour long. She said there was not very much small talk at the beginning of the call. Brian just cut right in and started explaining that him and Christine were having problems and getting counseling, but it wasn't helping and it was just making him feel worse about the situation. It's learned then that Brian had confessed that he forced himself sexually on Christine, and he confessed that he had done things he shouldn't have done. Catherine was stunned and not sure why he was calling her, but she took notes and listened to his description of the state of his marriage. She noted that Brian said he really wanted things to work out right because he loved his wife. And he mentioned he had a lot of stress because of being out of work. It made him feel a lot of pressure. And he described to her that he was trying to do more around the house so that he could make things easier for Christine. The biggest surprises haven't come yet, though. An RCMP blood expert testified that a rare blood type consistent with Christine Jacks was found in the family home and in the vehicle after she went missing. DNA was in its infancy, so this was compelling evidence. But next up was Alex Samard, who was called to testify for the Crown, and he shared details of seeing what could possibly be the blazer after Paul St. Marie and James Hoodrick finally gave up on following him on the highway just before midnight the night that Christine had gone missing. He testified that he was driving up to highway number one from Haddishville between one and 1.30 in the morning. Haddishville is about an hour and 10 minutes away from St. Anne, so it fits in the timeline very well. There was also hardly any traffic, so it was easy to remember the vehicle. He said he came up to a yellow blazer that appeared to have a piece of cloth or towel hanging over the back bumper on the driver's side that was hanging from under the tailgate. He found the driver suspicious because he kept varying his speed and seemingly wanted to get rid of Alex, either ahead of him or behind him. Finally, he decided to pass the blazer and move ahead on his journey. Later in the drive, he pulled over to check his tires, and the blazer passed him again. As Alex continued driving, he met up with the blazer, and the driver was being erratic again. He described that the driver appeared to be about 30 to 40 years old and pretty tall. He pulled over onto the shoulder of the road a ways to rest his eyes and organize things in his vehicle. And when he continued on, he noticed that the yellow blazer had pulled off about 20 meters into the bush just off the highway. He noticed it had some kind of canvas or cloth on top of the vehicle. And he noted that it was very strange, all this behavior, but he just drove on shaking his head. It was only a day or so after that he recognized the vehicle in a press release. When he was shown a photo of Jack's blazer in the courtroom, he identified it as the one he saw. It was very compelling testimony. 
But coming up next on November the 6th, Shirley Garbutt was called to the stand. She worked at the rib room at the Charterhouse Hotel. And six days after Christine went missing, she claimed to have seen her alive and well. She describes a woman in dark clothing who arrived at the restaurant around dinner time. The rib room wasn't busy, and she was the only patron. Shirley says the encounter stayed in her mind because she noticed that she ordered a crab dinner, a higher priced menu item, and a Caesar cocktail. And 45 minutes after she arrived, her meal was returned to the kitchen untouched. Shirley Garba didn't know the woman, but she testified that she did get a good look at her and that she appeared to be noticeably upset. When she saw the photo circulating in the media, she recognized it as the customer from a couple of days past. About five foot eight, shoulder length light brown hair, but straighter than Christine's in the photo was. She asked the server that did interact with the customer, Donna Pike, about the patron. Donna looked at the photo with Shirley and agreed that it was the same woman that she served that night. They were in agreement. The lady that visited the rib room was Christine Jack. When they expressed their concerns to the manager, he discouraged them from getting involved. She didn't call the police immediately. There was about a week or so before she decided to call. When she was asked why the delay, she explained that because she wasn't the stranger's server and didn't interact with her directly, she was hesitant to get involved. But the more it sat with her, the more she felt that she should say something. So, after the delay, she finally decided to call and report what she saw. She was never contacted again for further information as Donna Pike was, and she didn't call back to inquire about the investigation. When she was asked by the Crown Council why she didn't feel that she should call again once she was aware that someone was charged with murdering the lady before the day that she saw her alive and well, her response was indignant. She snapped that she was the one that made the initial call and no one contacted her after that. She mocked on the stand. It is the duty of the police to follow up on information provided by the citizens. I thought they would cover all leads. Obviously, they don't. On November 7th, Donna Pike is on the witness stand to testify about what she saw at the rib room on December 23rd, 1988. She wasn't hostile or aggressive, even though her questioning went on longer than her peers' testimony had. But she was impressive as she testified because she exhilarated so much certitude. She unquestionably saw Christine Jack dining in the rib room that night. She said Christine came into the Charterhouse restaurant between 5 and 6 p.m. She ordered a crab dinner with salad and a Caesar cocktail. She was confident in her memory because it was striking that the woman paid $25 in cash for the meal and then didn't eat any of it. She appeared to be average height, with dirty blonde highlighted hair, and a coat that she described as fire engine red, which she never removed during her visit. She said that her demeanor was snappish and bothered. She saw the photo of Christine in the media the next day, and she was certain that she had served the lady at work. She called the police immediately, unlike Shirley, and she gave them her details so they could reach her if they had any questions. She testified that after hearing that Brian Jack was arrested in the murder, she was surprised. Nobody had ever contacted her about the sighting. She agreed that seeing the news of the search for Christine's body struck her as a wild goose chase. She testified that she wasn't prepared to let an innocent man be charged with murder, when she was a witness that could absolve him. But when she was asked why she didn't contact the police again, she said they had my number. If they wanted to talk to me, they could have called me. When asked during cross-examination if it would concern her to know that Christine didn't have streaked blonde hair or own a red coat, she was matter-of-fact, saying she could have done anything in the days that she'd been missing. 
Another witness was Lauren Schnickel. The chief investigator was on the stand answering to questions regarding the claims that Christine had been seen alive after the date the investigators claimed she'd been killed. He said the investigation had moved from a missing persons investigation to a homicide investigation. So they weren't looking at tips that she'd been seen. He said what happened transpired in the family home at 170 Alberg Drive on the night of December 17th, and it led to her death. Her husband was involved in that. Brian's defense pointed out that the witnesses in St. Anne who claimed that they saw Brian were interviewed almost immediately after they called in to advise that they had seen Brian in the blazer. There were numerous calls coming in, he pointed out, However, because of the intense media coverage, there would be more apparent sightings. Schenkel said that he and his partner, Sergeant Edward Polishin, had attended to Brian's home. And Polishin introduced himself as a missing persons coordinator, even though both of them were actually associated with the homicide unit. He testified that Brian seemed annoyed after having spoken to almost 10 other officers, but then he began to detail the problems in the marriage, and he described Christine as having a faraway look in her eyes. The investigator also detailed how Brian admitted to making the anonymous call, detailing where they could find the blazer, and repeated his reaction to the jury, so what? By November 14, 1990, Richard Wilson made his statements to the jury, saying that the investigation was one-sided and inadequate. In a two-and-a-half-hour submission, he says there is no evidence of Brian killing Christine, and he points out that, in fact, over ten weeks, it was agreed by multiple people that Brian wanted his marriage to work, and that it was inconceivable that he would want to kill his rock, his strength, and his reason for living. He characterized his teddy bear-like client as having lived a 23-month nightmare and that he would never take Christine from her children. He points out the presumption, of course, is innocence, and he implored the jury to review the 10-week trial and take note of how most were in agreement on the stand that Brian was desperate to save his crumbling marriage and that Christine was clearly depressed and was even testing the waters with another love interest. He pointed out that police held back evidence that would have cleared Brian and only focused on anything that fit their assumption that Brian was involved. They ignored calls from potential witnesses that claimed they saw Christine sometime after the day that the Crown argued Brian had murdered Christine. He asked the jury if that was the kind of investigation that they wanted to put their faith into and convict an innocent man. He drilled in on the fact that most of the evidence was circumstantial and that there was no body as evidence of a murder. Richard Wilson tried to persuade the jury into believing that the witnesses that claimed to see Brian in St. Anne on the night of December 17th had all jumped on a bandwagon that was influenced by publicity around the missing mother. Leading Crown Attorney John Montgomery was more precise and direct with the 11 jurors. He presented them with the last ideas around Brian's obvious guilt. He said Brian was caught in a web of lies mingled with the truth. And yet even in early interviews with the police, Brian had claimed that Christine was a caring mother and she wouldn't have left without her children. The call to Catherine Walls and the letter that he wrote to Christine's father, as well as comments to mutual friends, all showed his desperation to save the marriage. But Christine's letter, found unsent, showed conclusively that she had no intention of staying with Brian. In fact, he would have to leave the home, regardless of his finances. She was making plans for the future and had confided into several of the witnesses that she was leaving Brian for good, and things were going to start looking up for her and the children. He argued this was not a lady who was planning on leaving her children. Christine was afraid of Brian. She told several of her close confidence that Brian had taken the conversations about their separation very badly. And on December 8th, 
he'd become frustrated at the discussions and threw her on the bed, pinning her there and yelling that she wasn't listening to him. It made her afraid. He was getting more aggressive and not being reasonable. Christine even asked her close friend to take care of the children if anything happened to her. The fear of something dangerous was real the weeks before she disappeared. Brian's account of how he spent the night of Christine's disappearance makes him suspect. Brian didn't just wait around for Christine to return home. Montgomery argued that he'd killed his wife and tried to hide and destroy the evidence. He told witnesses that Christine left the home at 9 o'clock, 9.30, and between 10 and 11. He told the Henrys that he'd been at their home at 4 a.m., which was unlikely. The next morning, he claimed that he'd already contacted the police, but that had never occurred until 10 o'clock that night. Several witnesses saw Brian in St. Anne with the blazer, and they even interacted with him as well as inspected the blazer. Police had presented evidence that they had a tracer on Brian's home phone and that he was the one to call in the discovery of the yellow blazer and try to disguise himself as Henry. After trying to avoid giving any identification, he lied when he was confronted. And then seeing that they had proof, he said, So I called it in. So what? He compelled the jury to keep in mind the blood evidence. Human blood was found on the back of the blazer and on the carpet, the cushions, and the vase in the family home. And they all matched Christine's blood type, which was a rare type that would only match 3% of the population in Manitoba. In St. Anne, the witnesses that he interacted with on the night that he was trying to hide Christine, Paul St. Marie, Brenda Appleyard, Roger Pelode, Muriel Samard, and her husband Patrick, all identified Jack as the stranger needing his blazer repaired. They described his unusual behavior, of him not allowing anyone else to go into the vehicle to touch the ignition or the steering wheel, and how even in the cold temperature, he would not drive the blazer fully into the garage past the front tires. Paul St. Marie and James Hudrick both sternly identified the discovered blazer as the one that they worked on that Saturday. The sample of the mixture that was added to the blazer matched the samples taken from the blazer when forensics went over the vehicle. The two witnesses testified that they followed the blazer going east on Highway Number 1 after midnight, and Alex Samard testified that he saw the blazer on the highway with a nervous driver that had a piece of cloth or towel hanging off the back, and he later saw it pulled off in the bushes. Judge Benjamin Hawke's November 15th charge to the jury before they deliberate is a total of 11 hours. On November 16th, the jury that's been sequestered for almost 36 days go for four and a half hours and return with a verdict of guilty. On November 16th, Brian Jack is found guilty and sentenced to life in prison for second-degree murder, following an exhaustive trial that's believed to be the longest in the province's history to that point. At least it's over, Violetta Reitner, Christine's mother, told the Winnipeg Sun. On the 19th, an appeal is filed against the conviction, and the next day, Brian Jack's attorney is in front of Justice Phillips requesting bail for his client, who had been on bail before his trial with no issues. He's quickly denied when the judge declares, the accused comes to this court as a convicted criminal. He's no longer clothed with the presumption of innocence. Nearly a month later, Wilson is back in front of a panel of judges, arguing an appeal and trying to secure bail for Brian. He was again denied, as the Chief Justice expressed that it had to be an exceptional circumstance to release a convicted murderer on bail. That December, Christine's friends and close co-workers hold a memorial service for Christine. Time goes on, but by November 1st, 1991, 
the appeals court has a hearing to decide if Brian Jack will be granted a retrial. It takes until January of 1992 for the Manitoba Court of Appeal to agree to grant Brian Jack a new trial, and he's granted bail after serving a year in prison. There are 23 reasons that were submitted as grounds for appeal, but there was only one that would stick. It dealt with the judge's long and involved charge to the jury before they deliberated. Details were covered in order of their occurrence, so the evidence of the St. Anne witnesses was reviewed before the servers from the rib room at the charter house. The jury was cautioned about the pitfalls of eyewitness identification, and Chief Justice Soak told the jury that they should look for supporting evidence when deciding on its weight. The comments regarding the two witnesses at the charter house could have been wrongly interpreted as not having supporting evidence, where if the jury felt that their witness testimony created a reasonable doubt, they should find not guilty in their verdict. They didn't require supporting evidence to believe their testimony. It's very convoluted because that charge was made more in relation to the witness testimony given by the people from St. Anne. They each had evidence to support each other's claims that they saw Brian Jack that night. There was a collective of people and all could confirm each other's memory, as opposed to an individual sighting that may or may not be a case of simple mistaken identity. It sounds kind of reasonable, but not in line with common sense. The jury clearly got it. And if they had believed that the two servers indeed did see Christine that night, then they would have had reasonable doubt and their verdict would have reflected that. However, not reasonable was some of the other stuff that was submitted in the document that supported the three judge panel's decision to allow a retrial. As an example, Chief Justice O'Sullivan wrote in his summary, referring to Christine Jack as a two-timing, deceitful, and scheming woman who was infatuated with her boyfriend. Nothing in evidence or witness testimony supported that statement. But who did? Chief Justice Scott and Justice Philip, who signed and approved the document when they concluded that her murderer should be granted a second trial because the two waitresses had mistakenly believed that they saw Christine dining in the restaurant. Their manager disagreed. He had testified that the lady served that night did not look like any of the photos of Christine and he had encouraged the servers not to get involved. The document also raised the suggestion that drawing adverse inferences is not speculation and went on to say that the jury was entitled to basically read into however they wanted, that DNA evidence wasn't presented, which wasn't possible to secure before the trial started, even after the four-month delay. And where was Adam, Christine's son, who must have seen some material incidents that night that his mother had disappeared? The Crown didn't call him because he was so traumatized that they decided to focus on the other evidence rather than call him as a witness and subject him to cross-examination. He was suffering with night terrors and anxiety already, and he wouldn't have proved useful as a witness. Drawing inference from those two points could in fact be speculation in my opinion, but that was the law's suggestion to make. Although it seemed the main reason for a retrial was the judge's charge to the jury, Justice Joseph O'Sullivan wrote in his decision that the conduct of the Crown and the Winnipeg police was unacceptable, and he could order a new trial on those grounds alone. Chief Justice Scott didn't go as far, but he agreed that the information should have been passed on in a more timely manner. They view this as progress for the courts, because it ensures trials are more balanced and fair now moving forward, with Walsh saying, you can't have a trial by ambush. The vice president of the Manitoba Trial Lawyers Association commented that timely disclosure 
referring to the waitress witnesses, would enhance justice by defending the rights of the accused. Brian's defense praised the courts for holding the crown, or the prosecution as many call it, accountable for not bringing forth the evidence as well. Contacted by the Winnipeg Free Press, Violetta Reitner, Christine's mother, said, I really don't feel like talking about it. It makes us very uncomfortable. Christine's close family friend that she considered an auntie said that the children were so upset about the outcome of the trial that they refused to go through the city of Winnipeg when on vacation through the province of Manitoba the summer before. She said, they don't talk about it. Cheryl McMillan did speak with them. And she said nearly the same thing. The idea of a second trial made her feel sick. And she claimed that the verdict wasn't a total shock because of the issue with the two waitresses. Brian Jack continued to write to his children ever since his first conviction. But they never agreed to open the letters and just disposed of them. By September 14, 1992, the second trial commences. The presiding judge for the second trial is Mr. Justice Wallace Derichuk. Six men and six women compose the jury, but there's a delay of two weeks before the trial begins. Evidence is scrutinized in front of the judge to prepare for predictable issues that would probably arise during such a complicated trial. By the 28th of October, Richard Wilson gives his final address to a jury for the second time and he points to similar arguments against the Crown as he had nearly two years before. Christine left home willingly. There was no body to present evidence that she had perished. The blood on the cushions found on Brian's home was most likely menstrual blood, and he flat out called the witnesses from St. Anne all mistaken, and that Brian just was not the man that appeared there looking for help with his blazer. George Dangerfield, the Crown attorney, gave his closing statements that same day, saying, Brian murdered Christine after having an argument with her and seeing that she was going to make a home for her and her children without him. That she was a dedicated mother that loved her children, and the idea that she would purposely just leave her children behind was unimaginable. She didn't run away in the blazer. She died in the family room. Montgomery said that Brian Jack killed his wife when she told him that she wanted to end their eight-year marriage. Citing evidence from blood on the foam of a freshly laundered couch cushion, he made a compelling presentation that left little room for any doubt that Brian murdered Christine. But there was a sliver of reasonable doubt in the case, and one would scoff at the idea after witnessing that. On October 30th, Brian Jack is found not guilty in the retrial of the Christine Jack case. When the verdict is read, Brian Jack confirms it with the sheriff's officer and then sobs uncontrollably, collapsing in front of the gasping gallery of courtroom onlookers. The next day, October 31st, 1992, the headline on the Winnipeg Free Press is Jack Not Guilty and Brian Jack, a free man. The two trials had a very similar critical path with repeat witnesses and evidence that was presented. The defense held the same arguments for Brian, and the Crown presented pretty much the same case and their belief of what happened the night that Christine Jack went missing. But one thing took it all off track, it was a small thing with big consequences. After deliberating for three days, the jury was having trouble setting on a verdict. They were brought back before Justice Derichuk, and they had two questions. In a circumstantial evidence case, clarify what is reasonable doubt. And secondly, clarify the difference between second-degree murder and manslaughter. When the judge responded to the second question, he instructed them that murder is killing by means of an unlawful act with specific intent, where manslaughter is killing by means of an unlawful act with this specific intent. Boom. 
In an accidental slip of the tongue, the Honorable Judge Derichuk said, with this specific intent, when what he meant to instruct them was, manslaughter is killing by means of an unlawful act without specific intent. You do something illegal and the person is killed, but that wasn't the intention of the accused. The jury was sent back to agree on a verdict. After Brian Jack's acquittal, Christine's mother is barely able to talk to the media. She said she fully expects that Brian will file for custody of the children, and she has said that they really don't want to see him. I can't say if it's anger. I think they're scared. She was right. That same day, Richard Wilson filed the paperwork. Violetta tells the Winnipeg Free Press that Adam is very upset. He's screaming. I had better go be with him. The Assistant Deputy Minister of Justice was on hand to say that a meeting about the appeal would happen the following Monday. That same day, Kirsten sees her father on the news while she's in town for the trial, and she says he has awfully long hair, he should cut it. Christine Jack's mom tells the Winnipeg Free Press that she also feels Adam is struggling. He was initially considered to testify because he has a good memory, and he remembers things about that night. And referring to his memory of Brian, she says he remembers he wasn't there. She says she's glad that she kept every letter that Christine ever wrote, even from back in her childhood, because Kirsten will enjoy reading them when she's older. The next day, Jeff Gindin, the president of Manitoba's Lawyer Association, suggested that an appeal was likely after the sentencing phase because he suspected that the judge used certain comments that the jury foreman claimed caused some conflict as they deliberated and it resulted in a last-minute charge in their final decision. On September 9, 1993, a 17-page report is released. The Manitoba Court of Appeal unanimously agrees that Brian Jack will go back to trial. Chief Justice Scott agreed that the wording to the jury caused an issue with the verdict. And he argued that the jury possibly would have used that incorrect direction, considering only a little more than half an hour later, the deadlock jury concluded their verdict. The slip of the tongue in this case, he said, is of great significance. He cited the fact that the seven to eight hour charge to the jury was excessive, and it wasn't reasonable to expect them to recall all of that information correctly, calling it totally unrealistic and he decided that the accused should be tried for a third time. But since the jury's issue seemed to be on intent, he decided that the charge should be manslaughter and not second-degree murder. By May 24th in 1994, Brian's lawyer argued in the Supreme Court that the tribunal that called for Brian to be retried should be reversed. He was rejected and the plan to go to trial for a third time was in order. And by January 30th of 1995, the third trial commences. Tiger Richard Wilson is representing Brian again, and this time he's up against George Dangerfield and Robert Morrison, two very respected prosecutors. Justice Scolland presided over the third trial, and it is not to be as long as the two previous trials, but was still exhaustive. With 45 witnesses called to the stand, the jury would have their focus running continually. By February 28th, they were finally sent to deliberate. And that same day, they returned to question Judge Scolland about two issues. The first was, where was Earl Weber? And the second was, what happens if we don't agree? The jury was instructed not to be concerned about Earl Weber on the night of Christine's disappearance, and he urged them to go back and deliberate using good common sense. They returned the next afternoon, stating that they couldn't reach a unanimous decision. 
Justice Scoland was determined, so he briefly ran over the main points of the case and sent them back to deliberate. Two women have claimed that they saw Christine Jack six days after she disappeared, yet no one has heard from her or seen her for six years. Did the woman in the red coat look like Christine or was she Christine? Measure it against the evidence. Did the witnesses in St. Anne all observe Brian in the bar and in the blazer and then help him get on the road? Consider what is likely. What inferences can you draw from the anonymous call that Brian made? He also cautioned them of trying to be amateur investigators and he instructed them to follow the evidence and the testimony that they have seen. He warned them of the pitfall of unfounded musings causing another group of jurors to hear the exact same evidence just to reach the same rational conclusion that they could have. He carefully explained the legality around reasonable doubt but put to them to consider it as brutally simple. How many blazers with stains of blood are likely to have been driving around that night? By March 2nd, now we're at 1995, the jury returns with a guilty verdict. It's for manslaughter, but they've notably elected a new foreman. Richard Wilson was immediately concerned that the judge's comments to the jury were too far pressured on the side of conviction. On March 3rd, in the penalty phase where the Crown requested 20 years, the defense asked for two or three. Justice Scullin resolved four years, saying he believed that would meet the ends of justice. He said that he took into consideration the 14 months that Brian had already served in custody and the length of time that the charges have been hanging over his head. In his ruling, the judge called it an assault that went tragically wrong and now Brian's own life was wasted because of the tragic and unintended death. Yeah, an appeal would definitely be coming that June where Wilson would argue that the judge made mistakes while clarifying and detailing the direction for the jury when they were hopelessly deadlocked. And on September of 1995, in a two-to-one decision, the Manitoba Court of Appeals dismissed yet another appeal filed by Brian Jack's attorney. Chief Justice Scott was on the panel, as well as Justice Charles Hubend, and together, they agreed that the judge was right to clarify the facts as he did, and they didn't agree that it was too persuasive to either verdict. Madam Justice Bonnie Helper sat alone in her belief that the conviction should be set aside. She was the first female to sit on the Supreme Court in Manitoba. She had been a provincial court family judge and had been sitting on the Court of Queen's Bench Family Division before becoming a Supreme Court Justice. But she didn't have near the experience or the expertise in criminal law to be sitting in judgment of the trial judge. And it showed in her determination that he had not presented the information in a fair and balanced way. Brian's counsel, Robert Wilson, had submitted that the issue of a stay of proceedings had not been addressed. And in this case, an acquittal was determined. So, for that very reason, Chief Justice Scott agrees to set a new date for the defense to argue their point. But not before pointing out that he strongly felt the sitting judge made a completely reasonable charge to the jury in the case, and so did Justice Hubin. The delay in Brian's sentencing being carried out on weight of his appeal was dragged out for three more months. And by March 3rd, 1995, Christine's parents seek permanent custody of her two children. Lawyer Jack King is the lawyer representing Violetta and confirmed at pretrial that they wished to move forward in the hearing, even though Brian's conviction was only to be confirmed and he was sentenced later in the day. He argued the case has been running for six years and there has to be some limit observed for the welfare of the children. That same day, 
Cheryl McMillan expressed disappointment in callers that phoned into a local radio program that were expressing sympathy for Brian, and some commenting that they didn't believe Christine was dead. She said she was positive that he did murder her friend, but felt that he didn't mean to. She shamed him for letting his defense argue that he was innocent and to take measures to cover it up. Although Brian and Christine's children never testified in court about their memory of the night their mother went missing, Christine's Aunt Lydia told the press that Adam knew exactly when his father came home. Although Brian had locked Adam's bedroom door, he was able to get out easily, and he and Kirsten got up and watched television. His claims were confirmed by the times and the names of the programs that they were watching on TV for hours until the early morning. It was suspected that Adam wasn't asked to appear in the court because he was suffering serious side effects of the event. He began to stutter frequently, and for the first two years after his mother was gone, he would sleepwalk and scream at night. Lydia said she was uncomfortable with the comments people were making about Christine just leaving. In fact, she believed that Christine's determination to have Brian removed from the home after Christmas so they could separate and begin the divorce process was what ended up costing her her life. By June 17, 1996, Richard Wolfson appeared in front of the Manitoba Court of Appeal for his lucky client that was only given a four-year sentence for the murder of his wife, Christine, even though he took no responsibility, showed no remorse, and lied every chance he had, and he never provided the family with a way to recover her remains. His claims were that instead of telling the jury to listen to each other's viewpoint and come to a conclusion, the judge instead reviewed facts of the case with them. It was his assertion that the judge should only review facts of the case before releasing the jury to deliberate, and that after that, he should only direct them in rules of the law or have evidence testimony provided from them as they request it. Wilson said that using the terms brutally simple and to use rationality in whether they could accept witness testimony regarding the possible sighting of Christine after her death left the impression that if the jury even found reasonable doubt regarding those witnesses, that they should use rationality about their claim. He claimed that stacked the evidence against his client. He said his client has had to live off of welfare on two occasions because he can't find meaningful work. His criminal record has left his life in shambles. And he elaborated that his client isn't sure from one day to the next where he stands in his future. Rick Saul also appeared at the hearing, arguing that eight years later, Brian Jack still showed no remorse. He argued the sentence should have been longer, saying it falls short of what is warranted. Finally, that third appeal is dealt with on December 11, 1996, and two issues to be resolved remain. Is it abuse of process to try Brian Jack for the murder again? And if abuse of process is determined, a stay of proceedings could be enacted where the accused would be released from the conviction with no criminal record. Secondly, does the Crown's argument for a longer sentence have merit? The response to each ended up being that the delay of almost eight years in finding a ruling and to consider the impact of a fourth trial on the people involved would have the conclusion that it would tarnish the image of the courts. And he determined that the jury's verdict should be set aside. To the second point of the length of the sentence, if it was found that the four-year sentence was unfit, he would allow the Crown's appeal to increase the sentence to six years in consideration of the lengthy trial. It was agreed that Brian's appeal could move ahead to the Supreme Court once again, and on June 20th of 1997, the Supreme Court delivered a judgment on the appeal. After three trials, 
two convictions and three appeals, the Supreme Court ruled that there would be a stay of proceedings rather than a fourth trial seeking a conviction for the murder of Christine Jack. In John Montgomery's book, Trials and Errors, The People vs. Brian Gordon Jack, he tells of a young lawyer referring to a similar decision from over 10 years previous. And Justice Scullin responded, It was a retrogressive decision. And he continued to say that it was a decision that was arrived by a court which does in fact lack adequate training and experience in criminal law. Constable Robert Carver claimed that although the investigation is no longer active, it does remain open. At the time of Brian Jack's stay of the charges, his daughter Kirsten was residing in Iowa with her husband and their three children. And in 2008, Kirsten wrote to her father and asked him to please relate the details of where Christine's remains could be located. Brian Jack reportedly didn't believe that the letter was authentic, so he never did reply the one time that his daughter reached out to him. Later in 2015, Richard Wilson, Brian's attorney, told the Winnipeg Sun that at the end of the day, I was satisfied that there was reasonable doubt. He said, I'm not a jury and I'm not a judge. I'm the man's lawyer. But if you would have asked me at the conclusion of this case, whether I thought that there was proof beyond a reasonable doubt, I would have said that I thought that was lacking. On April 23rd of 2017, Kirsten told the press that, I was always wondering if I'm doing enough. Is there anything else I can do? Anyone else I can talk to? Christine's friend Cheryl McMillan said, We do want to know what happened. You have your friend one day, and she's vanished off the face of the earth the next. It's hard to grasp. Sometimes I think I will find out what happened, and other times I think I'll have to wait and ask Christine when I see her in the afterlife. You want to know... It's hard to accept someone could vanish without a trace. There are theories. Some still believe that Christine Jack's remains were disposed of in the garbage dumpster by the Salisbury House parking lot where the blazer was found. Although the Brady landfill where their refuse is discarded was searched on January 5th following Christine's disappearance. Others feel her remains are possibly buried around the St. Anne area, but were missed during the search, or they were not buried, but taken by wild animals in the area. Others still have in the back of their mind the testimony that the waitresses from the rib room at the Charterhouse Hotel gave, that they believe that they saw Christine Jack there. But trials can be tricky. It's not magic. Because in magic, there's the three parts that we learned about in the movie, The Prestige. There's the pledge, where a magician will show you something ordinary, like a deck of cards. And then he shows you this object. He asks you to inspect it and see if it's real. But it probably isn't. And then the second act, the turn, where they take an ordinary something and make it do something extraordinary. And you're looking for the secret. But you won't find it. Because you're not really looking and you don't really want to know. You want to be fooled. Because making something disappear isn't enough. You have to bring it back. That's why every magic trick has a third act. The hardest part. The part we call the prestige. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Writing About Crime. I want to thank a few people. Um, first of all, Crystal, for your support and your cheerleading through, I don't even know how to describe <laughs> the drama um, before I decided to come back and do the podcast. But thank you, Crystal. I really appreciate how much you stuck with me. And I want to thank Lindy for her email and Jennifer for her email <laughs> and Lee Bingham Redgrave for a case suggestion that I think you might hear pretty soon. Also, um, Melina from Comment that she left on Facebook about a Netflix show. Thank you for reaching out. And Wyatt J for his message on Facebook. I also had some reviews that were really generous on iTunes from Curiosity Cat, 
and Morbidology left me a really nice review. I hope you check out her podcast. It's really good. And Carly Lee, as well as Aaron S. And then lastly, <laughs> someone named Limp Biscuit one that made a comment that the music is so loud. And you're right. <laughs> I didn't have a clue what I was doing for the first episodes, but I appreciate that you didn't give me just one star. So I will go back and try to correct that on those episodes when I can. But for now, they'll just remain as they are, sucking, <laughs> but showcasing the amateurish attempt to create atmosphere. <laughs> I'm not perfect in the process of learning. So hopefully if you continue to listen, you'll see it gets a little bit better, but eh, I can't say much more. Um, and then finally, I hope you enjoy these two promos, one for Active Shooter and another for a podcast called Sooner State. I hope you'll check them out. They're both really good. I enjoy both of them. <laughs> All right. Take care, everyone. That was a long episode, but thank you for not leaving. The investigation into the high school massacre Parkland is... High School Massacre. At least 14 dead, 50 injured. 13 people were killed today in a mass shooting. That includes a suspected gunman. Active Shooter, a podcast that studies the psychology, motives, and methods behind some of the most notorious active shooters in North America and beyond. East Alameda Avenue. They're saying somebody's shooting in the auditorium. We will discuss the whys, the hows, and most importantly, the proposed solutions. Can the proper mix of mental health services and gun access put a stop to what has now become an accepted everyday occurrence? Have we become desensitized and accepting of this new phenomenon? Join us as we break down each case and discuss the failures that led to each event and how we can identify and stop them in the future. Join us soon, and please subscribe to Active Shooter. Hey, fellow Writing About Crime listeners. I'm Cece, the host of a new true crime podcast, Sooner State True Crime. As a born and bred Okie, I'll cover cases based in my wonderful home state of Oklahoma. The term Sooner actually refers to cheaters in the land run, my state's very first true crime. Episodes are released twice a month in Apple Podcasts and most podcast apps. Visit our website, anchor.fm slash crime state to listen now. So come away with me to my crime state on the Sooner State True Crime Podcast. And please stay Sooner safe out there, y'all.